So the problem I have today is the omission, the glaring omission of Joshua after the spies. It says, but my servant Kalev, Avdi Kalev, Akev Hoyasar Ruach Acheres, because he had a different spirit, Emo, Vayamale Acharai, and he followed me, not the Miraglim, Haviosi Vedelho Oretz, Asheba Shamavazaro Yorishena. He will go in to inherit his portion in the land, and his children shall inherit. Well, one second. We started off with two guys, the Miraglim and two guys, Joshua and Kalev. Well, what happened to what happened to Josh? Poor old Joshua. He he doesn't get to inherit the land. Yes, he does. He goes into the land and he leads the people. So my question is, what is it about Kalev that he gets prime slot when God informs? Moshe Rabbeinu, that the entire generation uh, will not go into the land of Israel. Va'avdi kolev, but my servant kolev, akev hoyasor ruach acheres. And I'm going to be medaic on that word acheres. The translation should mean he had a different spirit, acheres. But we'll see what the Medrash does with that. Now, Rashi says ruach acheres. Rashi's bothered already by that word acheres. My servant Kale, because he had a different spirit, another spirit with him, the word another suggests that he was filled with a twofold spirit, Acheres. He had the first spirit, and then there was a second spirit. What were the two spirits? The one, Rashi says, quoting the Medrash, to which he gave an utterance, his mouth and the other which he concealed in his heart. So today's talk is duplicity l'shem shomayim. Rashi is saying that the word acheres is not another spirit, meaning there's the spirit of the spies, and my servant Kalev had a different spirit. That's the pshat for sure. But the word acheres would imply that he had the original spirit, and then he had a different spirit. The original spirit was his speech, what he told the Miraglim. But then he goes along with the Miraglim and spies out the land. And then there's a different spirit, the spirit in the heart in which he's always been with God. Now, Rashi's interpretation, according to the Medrash, is because my servant Kalev because he had the spirit in the heart, aside from what he said politically, but his heart was in the right place. That's the Midrashic interpretation of Ruach Acheres. Oh, so now because he had the right spirit, never mind that he was going along with all the gangsters, I'm going to give him a piece of the land. So we've upped the ante, really. That is, my question today is, when is enough enough? What is loyalty? Is loyalty in the heart? It's in the speech. And it says, Vayahas Kalev Esha'om El Moshe. The Kalev hushed the people. Vayahas, he hushed the people. Vayome, and he said, Olo Yerashno, so Kiyochul Nuchala. We can surely go up to the land. We can surely overcome it. And that calmed them down. Why? He caused them all to be silent 
because they thought he would say the same as themselves. It is this that is alluded to in the book of Joshua. When Joshua comes to the land of Israel, he says, Vayikshu b'nei Yehuda el Yoshua, Joshua 14, 6, Vayomelev kolev ben Yefune haknizi. And Kolev then tells them, Ato yodato es adova shediber adonoi el Moshe. Don't you remember what God said through the hands of Moses? Isho elokim, al odosai, over me. Apparently there was a problem. Does he get a piece of the land or not? Ben Arbaim Shana Onochi, when I went up with the spies, I was only 40. Bishloach Moshe Eved Adonoi Oti, when Moses, the servant of God, sent me, Mikadesh Banea, Leragel Etaaret, to spy out the land. Now listen to the words, Vaoshev Osodovo, and I brought him back the word, and now he adds, Kaasher Im Levavi. As it was in my heart. Rashi says, as it was in my heart, but not the way I spoke it. That's the beautiful Midrashic taking a piece from a distant part of Tanakh and putting it together. So the Ruach HaCheres is what was in my heart. And our proof is the proof text from Joshua. Now, the Medrash Tanchuma in Shlach on which Rashi bases his idea, says, and Kolev hushed the people, Vayechas es and now the Medrash splits it into two, the mouth and the heart. As at first he said to them, I am of the same opinion as you. We got to spy it out. So he started off as a politician. He knows they're going to do it, whatever happens. So he's being very clever. I'm just like you guys. I'm one of the boys. As it says in Joshua, like it was in my heart. Meaning, he had another spirit in him besides what his double talk was from his mouth. So when the spies came, the Medrash says, they said, we can trust Kalev. Immediately stood up on a safsal. Latin safsal is a subcellium a platform or a stool or a speaker's box like in Hyde Park. So they are thinking, see how the Medrash puts it sequentially, not at the same time. Starts off by saying, I'm one of you. I'm good. Let's do it. But when Moses shows up, he gets on the soapbox and he hushes the people by saying, we should certainly go up and possess it. We have no need to do this. So the hushing of the people wasn't a calming of the people like Rashi had suggested, but it was more that they were completely flumboxed. They were dumbfounded. They were hushed by his switch of allegiance. He hushed them because they were thinking that he would utter Losh and horror about them now. And immediately when they heard this, they took issue with him and says... We are unable to go up against these people because they are like giants. Meaning their response was, what are you talking about? So when Rashi says it was in my heart, but not in my mouth, he was afraid to tell them that he would not say as they would. It's difficult to resist group pressure. As long as he's with the other spies, he hides his true feelings because he wanted them to think he agreed with them. But by the time Kalev returned to Moshe, he opened up his heart 
and he says the land is fine and it's very good and we don't need to do this. Okay, now what about Joshua? Where the hell is Joshua? Why is it that Kolev gets the good rap and nothing about Joshua? The silence of Joshua. So the Gemara in Sota 34b says, I'll tell you why Joshua is not mentioned. Number one, Joshua didn't play games. He wasn't a politician. He was so humble, he can't play that political game. Moshe knows that he's not going to be able to stand up to this wily political crowd. And so he has to rename him. He has to say, Yehoshua, which means, Yah, Yudke, God, Yoshiach will save you from this bunch, these these politicians. Me'atzas, from their Eitzov, from their advice. Yehoshua kvar bikesh Moshe alav rachamim, because Joshua had said, I can't do this. He was already crying to Moshe, I'm not a politician. Bikesh Moshe alav rachamim, and Moshe then davens for Yehoshua, so what Moshe has done is to realize that Kalev is a politician and Kalev splits between his mouth and his heart. Joshua is a nar. A nar doesn't just mean he was a lad. He never left Moshe's tent. He was an innocente and couldn't stand up. So he has to change his name. And the meaning is that Kolev changed his mind, according to the Medrash, sequentially. It wasn't that he was of one mind and one heart together. Initially, he did believe that they needed to spy it out. Subsequently, when he met up with Moshe, he had a change of heart. So the mind and the heart changed, whereas Joshua was opposed to the intentions of the spies from the beginning. Okay. Now, I want to tell you a very dark medrash about Shlach Lecha Anoshim. We know that God didn't approve. So what does he mean? And he says to Moshe, send out spies. Everyone's bothered by this because in Devorim, it's God is very upset that they sent spies. And right here at the end of the spies, he says, you're all Chayv Misa and you won't leave the desert. So what does it mean, Shlach Lecha Anoshim? And the medrash sees this amazing mashal, and the mashal is Rabbi Yoshua Omar, mashal lema hadava domer, lemelech shehoya lo ben, to a, fa- a king who had a son, and he wishes to marry him to Isha na'a ubat tovim va'ashira, to marry him off to a beautiful girl who has lots of yichas and is wealthy. So the king says to his son, I have invited, I have made a shidduch with this amazing girl, with good pedigree, and she's wealthy. Everything you would want in a girl. Okay, let me, let me, let me go and see her. They did a study of all the Lakewood Bocherim who want to get married, and they asked them to prioritize the five mems. Mamon, Machshava, Midos, Mishpacha, 
What do you what do you quantify? What's on the top of your list? I asked Isaac that, by the way. <laughs> is it appearance? Is it wealth? Is it Mito's character? Is it family pedigree? And everyone writes the first on the top of the list is Mare appearance, right? So the boy he goes, that's very nice. You got me a shidduch. You got me a good mishpacha. She's got yichas. She's got this. She's got money. I got to see her. Show me the goods, right? He didn't believe his dad. What didn't he believe? Well, Eddie, you know, you can't have everything in life. So she's probably wealthy. She's probably but tovim, meaning good pedigree, because most of the kings of England married the daughters of France because of political reasons, right? And she's probably got good middows, but she probably looks like the back of a bus. So he didn't believe her. So father got really, really upset. So the father says, What should I do? So if, if I tell him I'm not going to show her to you, then he'll now think, Oh my God, she's ugly. Why is it that she doesn't want to show her to me? Meaning the, the father is very clever. If I don't show her to him, then of all the things that he is not going to believe, he's not going to believe the appearance one. He's not going to say, oh, well, maybe she's poor or, oh, maybe she doesn't have yichas. He's going to say <laughs> she looks like the back of a bus. So he says to him, lefikach lo Therefore, he doesn't want to show her to me because he's ugly. Lesof. So what did the father do? Amalo, Reeoto. Okay, I'm going to let you go and see her. Vateda, but now let me tell you something. You'll see that I didn't lie to you. The father is now saying, okay, I'm going to show her to you to prove to you that I wasn't lying. Meaning what? It's very important that I keep my credibility with you. That's more important than anything. You want to see her? That's crazy. But I'm going to do it because I need to have that relationship with you so that you will believe that I wasn't lying. However, you, by demanding to see her, you didn't have any faith in my judgment about what's pretty and what's not pretty. You will see her, but you will never see her in your house as a wife. I'll give it to your son. It's such a dark medrash. I mean, what kind of a demand does a father who himself probably got married and first took a look at his girl would demand from a son such loyalty that he's saying to him, I'm testing your loyalty. Did you believe me? You don't. Okay. So I'm going to show it to you to prove to you that I was right. However, because you didn't believe me, you'll never have the rewards from that visual appearance. You will not, even if you fall in love with her and you go, oh yeah, she's good for me. You were right. No, it's not going to happen. It's very vindictive. I'm not going to give it to you. I still need the yichas. I still need the relationship. I'm going to give it to your son. Now look at the nimshal. Rabboni Shalom said, Eretz hatovahi. The land is good. But they didn't have faith. They said, nishlecha anashim. Let's send spies. So God says to himself, okay, if I tell them you can't go as spies, 
then they will say he doesn't want to show it to us because it really isn't good. She's not beautiful. So better let them see it. But I will take an oath that not one of them will enter the land because they will not see the land which I swore to there, but I will give it to their children. I thought that that medrash is a very typical medrash for the mashal of the king and the son. But I see, as I normally do, that it is a protest mashal, meaning when is it written? It's written 300 years after the Khurban. 300 years after the Khurban, we've been kicked out of the land. Having been kicked out of the land, what is this Bala Medrash telling us in the Mashal that I didn't know anyway? The Pshat is quite obvious because it says it in the Posse, because you didn't believe me. Oh, so you're not going to see the land. You had to see it yourself? Really? So then what does the Moshal add? The Moshal adds a hidden protest as to the behavior of the king, which we couldn't say theologically. It would be clearer. How dare you talk about the Rabbinish Loyland that way? The Moshal brings it down to a fictional narrative that allows us to handle the theological problems going on in this text when you deal with a divine that's all-powerful and a human being that is powerless. And so, as we see with Midrashim about women who are powerless, about slaves who are powerless, the rabbinic imagination allows us to work it, to look at the behavior of the father and his unreasonable demands from his son. And I see in that a protest saying, well, look what happened in the end. We didn't get the land. We lost the land. We lost the land. You were too demanding. We were only human. We lost the land. Now, I want to end up with this idea that in his heart, he was duplicitous in the sense that he was a politician and then he changed his heart. But God felt that because he had an lev acheres, a heart that was for God, it was okay for him to lie in the beginning. When, it, when is it okay to lie for political ends for the sake of peace? So, we, of course, we go to the first parak in Mesechet Avot, Mishnah Ovos, Pirkei Ovos, in which it says, Hevei ketalmidim Aharon. Now, be like the Talmidim of Aharon, and the Mishnah says, Ohev Shalom, okay, lovers of peace, Verodev Shalom. What does that mean, Rodev Shalom? To pursue peace. It means you don't wait till the Machlokas comes to you. Rodev Shalom means you pursue it in order to resolve it. That's what the Avot de Rabbi Natan says. Lying for the sake of peace. Loving peace, what does that mean? This is to teach to be a person who loves peace among all the people of Israel, just like Aaron loved peace between everyone. As it says in Malachi, Torat emet haya bepihu, he had the law of truth in his mouth, for avlo lo and avla, unrighteousness, something uh, negative, faithless, lies, never was on his lips. B'shalom u'b'mishor halach iti. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and now the critical words, v'rabim heishiv me'avon. He turned away many from sin. The Medrash in Avot de Rabbi Natan said, the pursuing of peace is not just, hey, I'm here if you need me. 
but he actually was Rodev Shalom in the sense he was turning people away from sin. Now Rabbi Meir says, give me an example of that. So he says, two people were fighting with one another. Aaron would go and sit next to one of them. He would go out and he would sit with one of them and say, my son, look at the anguish your friend is going through. His heart is ripped apart and he is tearing at his clothes. And he's saying, how can I face my old friend? I'm so ashamed I betrayed his trust. Then Aaron would go to the other guy's house and sit with him until his rage subsided. And Aaron would go to the other and in the fight and say the same thing. Look how your friend is ripped apart. And when the two people saw each other, they would embrace and kiss one another. That's what it says. And the entire house of Israel wept for Aaron for 30 days because he was not only Ohev Sholem, he was Rodev Sholem. Now that same Rabbi Meir, we have a story that I want to bring to you from Otsa Midrashim, and it's a Yerushalmi in Soita, and it's also in Leviticus Rabbah, in which Rabbi Meir, that same Rabbi Meir who was telling us about how to be pursue peace, and that's the notion of peace, and obviously that notion of peace meant that Aaron was lying. He lied. He went to one and lied. He went to the other and lied. But the end was Rodev Shalom, that he brought them together. His heart was in the right place, but his lips were like collabs. They were duplicitous, right? So what is the limits of this? And what does it mean? What does it mean, this notion that I can, I can lie and I can do stuff? The halacha is that way. In Shalom Bayes issues, you can lie for the sake of Shalom Bayes. No question about it. Rabbi Meir, now, Rabbi Meir, who lived in the town of Hamatha, outside Tiberias, was an itinerant preacher. So he would go once or twice to a village and he would be sitting and giving a midrashic discourse on Friday night when people could wake up late the next day. Now there was a certain woman who was standing there and she was listening to him learning midrash. A woman? What's a woman doing on Friday night except cooking and feeding her husband. No, this was a woman, very typical, atypical woman. And she went and sat at the medrash. Amintas she waited until he concluded. Midrash Azla Lebeita, she goes home. Ashkacha Butzina Tofen, it was so late that her Shabbos candles had extinguished. That could have also meant that the food was cold. And it certainly meant that the hubby didn't get his Friday night meal. Amalabala. So the country bumpkin husband says to her, An Chavet, where the hell were you? Amrale, so she says, Ana Yativa Vashama Kale Darusha. I went to see a lecture. Amala Kain Vakain La Ayilaha. So he says, Don't you ever bother to come back until the Azla Rorokach Bampedrusha. You go and spit in the face of the guy who gave the lecture. Don't come back. Okay. Amrun lo magarta badu atun So after three weeks outside the house, in the village, everybody knows about it, right? Everybody knows that he had a spat and she can't come back until she spits in Rabbi Meir's face. So the neighbor said, come, we'll go with you to the Rebbe. 
Kiva Dechame Yasser Rabbi Meir Tzafa Baruch HaKodesh. Now, in, in the three different versions of Yerushalmi and Soita, the Leviticus Rabbah, and in Oitz Midrashim, we don't know what happened, but he was very bright. Here it says the divine spirit told him what was going on. Some people made it, he just checked his Twitter account. Amalahon, uh, so he asked them, he asked the ladies as they walked into the base medrash, and he's giving a drasha in front of everyone. Do you have anyone, a woman, who is able to chant incantations regarding the eyes? Now, everyone knew in uh, the ancient Near East that spitting in the eye had medicinal properties. There are antibodies in the spit. Can anyone do the incantations and spit in my eye because I have a sore? He was lecturing. He had nothing wrong with him. They walk in and suddenly he goes, oh, can someone give me an Amron So the woman's neighbor said to her, here's your chance. Go and spit in, your, in, in his eye and your husband will let you back in the house. Given the Yosva Kame, so when she sat before him, she got cold feet. Amrole, Rabbi Le, Anachakima. Really, I don't have a PhD in spitting. I know nothing about antibodies. I really am not an incantation, uh, you know, Baal Shem. I don't know how to do all this stuff. So the Rabbi Meir says to her, knowing that she was the woman attending his class, never mind, spit in my face, Sheva Zimnin. Spit in my face seven times and I'll be healed. So she did it. So she's going, seven times. Now he says to her, Go and tell your husband, Go and tell your husband, You only told me to spit in his face once. But you know what a great wife I am? I spat in his face seven times. After Hachin, she did so, and everything ended happily. Here we have an example of the same Rabbi Meir, who employs this dramatic ruse to get his wife back into the house with her husband. It is such a brilliant, eye-opening window into women learning, Country bumpkins, Rabbi Meir, willing to be humiliated in the base medrash by a woman spitting in his face. So then it's obviously, Amalaho Talmidai. So his Talmidim say, Kach Mavazin is Talmud That's how you treat a Talmud Look what you did in terms of the office you hold as a rabbi. You allowed this woman to be mavazet, to shame you in public. That's how you treat a Talmud You should have told one of us to do it. So then he said, Shouldn't I be compared to our creator, the Tony Rabbi Shmael? Shouldn't I be anything like, shouldn't I follow an example of my creator who said by the Sota ritual that in order to bring a man back together with his wife, I'm willing to have my Yudke Vovke on parchment dissolve in the water of the May Sota and give it to her to drink? That was his response to them. It was a Talmudic response. This wonderful story has many, many layers to it. I wanted to bring us back to Vayahas 
Kalev et Ha'am, because in his heart, God was so impressed by his heart that he gave him a portion of Eretz Yisrael. This impression of the heart in the Hasidic mind becomes absolutely critical. And for me, this woman enters the base Medrash to study Torah instead of staying at home and wait on her husband. The wise sage has a sense of humor and is not worried about dishonoring himself in public because he's the same Rabbi Meir that says, Rodev Shalom. For here, Rodev doesn't just mean running to this house and running to that house. Rodev means employing dramatic personae on the stage of spitting and incantations in front of a whole crowd. The punchline he delivers in the end is very slick. He wants to shut up his fawning disciples, so he says something very shocking. He equates himself with the Almighty, but then he quickly turns his blasphemous statement on its head. If God is prepared to dishonor himself by allowing the Yudke Vodke description of his holy name to be dissolved in the sacred water as part of the Sota for the sake of marital peace, should I not even be more willing to dishonor myself? The point of the story is not that Rebbe Meir is so humble that he's willing to have a woman spit in his face. Nor is the point that Rabbi Meir considers domestic peace, shalom bias, more important than his own honor. That, that's the pshat in that drush. The point is that Rabbi Meir is able to make everyone happy through his quick thinking. His brilliant solution to the couple's fight is made possible by the multifaceted meaning of spitting in the ancient world. In the mind of the husband, spitting in Rabbi Meir's face is an insult intended to teach him a lesson for keeping his wife away from home. Mayer accepts his punishment, but is able to reverse it, to reverse the meaning of the act of spitting by recontextualizing it in medical terms. So instead of being an insult, it's a medical treatment. He knows that he will have to get spit at, but transforms the insult into an act of healing. A slight change in the act, rather than spitting once, combatively in the face, the women spit seven times, ritually through the incantations in his eye. There's no difference in the language between the two kinds of spitting. In both cases, the mattress uses the word rakak, resh kuf kuk. And here too, Rav Meir displays great wisdom. Rather than being a ritual charm, Seven becomes an illustration of the woman's extra zeal to fulfill her husband's vow. So what is the learned lesson that we can learn? Is there a connection between good and bad spitting in the ancient world? For sure. And it appears that the answer is yes. They appreciated the ambiguity of this heavily charged act. Remember in Chalitza, she spits on his foot because of the rejection and exploits the multiple meanings of the drama of this effect. That's what really got me about the story of Rabbi Meir. So Rabbi Meir's display of his skill and his quick thinking is his Rodev Shalom, the way Aaron is Ohev Shalom and Rohev Shalom, and Kolev's heart was with the divine, and his Ohev Shalom was a political one with the people. Have a great week, everyone.